Well, good morning again. And if you want to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2, that's where we will be, or at least that's where we will begin. So today's one of those days where we're going to cover a lot of scripture. We're going to move uh, fairly quickly and because I want us to look at a theme or something that sort of can only really be seen over, over a wide range. And so while you're turning there, I want to start with... Uh, with an idea that actually surfaced at the dinner table the other day in my home, for some reason we ended up in a conversation about physics and somebody asked about the strong nuclear force. So it's uh, been a while since I studied all that. Uh, so I've since armed myself with Wikipedia. Um, but anyway, the question was, uh, what are the forces that are around and what's stronger? And of course, you want to say the strong nuclear force is the strongest. And in a lot of ways it is. The strong nuclear force, and again, to the physicists out there, just maybe you should hit mute for the next five minutes. Uh, but the strong nuclear force is, is uh, the force um, that really holds matter together. Okay, so it's, it's the force that exists among protons and neutrons. And you might think of it as the stuff that holds stuff together uh, in a lot of ways. And it is, uh, of the four, it, we think of it as the strongest, particularly when we're dealing with things up close. So there's three other forces. There's the weak nuclear force, which I don't really understand. It's for college folk. And then there is the electromagnetic force. And then finally, there is the force of gravity, which uh, in comparison, at least when you're talking subatomic distances, so when you're dealing with particles in the atom, the force of gravity is negligible, it's essentially zero. Physicists don't even calculate for gravity, that's how weak it is. The strong nuclear force in, in subatomic distances, the strong nuclear force is millions of millions, literally millions of millions times stronger than the force of gravity. But, when you leave those distances and you start to deal with big distances, like distances of planets and stars, when you start dealing on the cosmic level, well, now the force of gravity is something that really needs to be accounted for because this is what's unique about the force of gravity. It goes on infinitely. You, your body, is exerting a gravitational pull on every object in the universe right now. And so there's something about it that even though it is, you might think of it as a weak force in comparison to some others, it has, if you sort of aggregate, aggregated the fact that you're pulling and tugging on every object in the universe instantaneously, you could say on the whole, and in, in sort of an infinite kind of perspective, it's generating a, a significant force, maybe even more on the whole. And that, that conversation uh, fits so well into today's subject. If I could sort of give a question for the sermon, uh, it might be this. By what power am I or are you supposed to evangelize? What is it that we're supposed to uh, trust in? What force of the Holy Spirit? And when we read Acts and when we read the Gospels, we see uh, examples that really stand out to us, like a healing of a lame man, or the restoration of sight to the blind, or the healing of a leper, or the casting out of demons. 
And we see those, and I want to call those kind of like the strong spiritual force, or I'll call it today the apostolic force. These really remarkable, punctuated moments of Holy Spirit power that in and of themselves, are they're just unrivaled. You, you can't beat them. And they play a role in evangelism. But I do think there is another kind of force, and that's what I want us to pay attention to today, is you might be discouraged from sharing the gospel because you don't feel like you have what the apostles have. But I want us to see today in the word that there's another kind of force that is uh, present in the story and rising in significance in the story. And it's the same power that you and I have. And I want to show it first in John 4. We've been talking about the woman at the well every week now. Uh, we sort of stop here on the way into the message and think about it. And there is one of those times that we see the, you might say, the strong force. And then we also see uh, this weaker force play out. So uh, by now we should be fairly familiar with the story. Jesus is in the land of Samaria. He sits down at a well and says to a Samaritan woman, he asks her for a drink of water. And that begins a conversation, a very spiritual conversation, where he ultimately offers her water that'll spring up in her to eternal life, this water that she'll never thirst, this living water. It becomes this very spiritual conversation. <clears throat> and it all of that is heading towards one of these strong apostolic force moments where Jesus says to her, go get your husband. And to which she replies, I don't have a husband. To which he says, it's right when you say you have no husband. For you have had five, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And that moment, that's sort of that strong force moment. She even responds to it. It's clear you're a prophet, she says. It's clear you're a prophet. Because who knows that, right? He spoke into her soul right there. And so the story sort of pivots around that and in that punctuated moment. But there are other things in the story that we should recognize that are not so significant, maybe not so strong, kind of the weak force uh, that's worth looking at. Like, for example, the mere fact that Jesus chose to sit down and visit with her. How much power did that take? I mean, you can do that. Or, or here, this is towards the end of the story. So Jesus has sort of spoken into her. He's revealed himself as Messiah. And then I'll pick up in verse 39 of the story. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Now you tell me, is the woman's testimony the strong force or is it the weak force? Because they believed in him because of what she did. It goes on. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Does it sound to you like Jesus did miracles? Does it sound like he did a lot of Holy Ghost parlor tricks? Not to me. It sounds like he taught. In fact, all through the ministry of Jesus, we notice the miracles. But if we read closely, what we really see is that Jesus is simply trying to teach. He's very often actually trying not to heal so that he can teach. There's this, 
that the ministry of the word, the authority of truth, these sorts of things have real power. And this village, we might say, is uh, is it saved by the weak force or the strong force? Come on. We can go to Acts 2 now with this, and we'll sort of build this idea out a little bit better. We're going to start in Acts 2, and uh, to give you a kind of a lead up to Acts 2, the uh, Acts is sort of the gospel of the Holy Spirit. It's where we gain a regard for um, the ministry of the Lord through the Spirit in Christians that upon which he builds his church. And so that's what we're watching through the book of Acts. The thesis or the theme of the book is right out in the first chapter. Jesus says to the disciples, power is going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. So there's this, the spirit will work in you and you'll be my witnesses. So that said, in Acts 2, the spirit comes upon the disciples. It's this uh, Pentecostal moment. They speak in tongues. That's the strong force, right? There's this strong force moment where they're speaking in tongues and then Peter filled with the spirit boldly proclaims those are really radical experiences that uh you know when we look at that sometimes we cower from evangelism because we're not that and on that day it says three thousand were added to the number and this brings us to the end of the second chapter when the church is first described and here's what it says and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, in this description, this sort of of the church, we see several things. First of all, we see this strong power, right? We see this apostolic power, signs, wonders, the authority of the apostles. So it's present, but we see other things right alongside of it that aren't quite as extraordinary, or at least so they seem. We see that the church has this one anothering going on. They share things in common. They care for one another. So we see that. And then we see that they're living life together. Daily they met in the temple courts and in one another's homes to break bread. So there's this life together. And then there's this idea of prayer. And then at the end it says, and day by day, the Lord added to the number those who were being saved. So the impression we're supposed to get is there's this Holy Spirit moment where the strong force comes on the apostles. They preach in tongues and in boldness. 3,000 are added to the number. And then what we see is a lot of things contributing to the continual growth of the church. Like if you were to put a line under the end of that passage and a plus sign next to it and add it all up, it would equal a growing church. But if we were to say, well... Is it growing because of the strong apostolic force or is it growing because of the witness of the members of the church living together, sharing things, praying, uh, uh, suffering with one another, praising God with one another? Which one is it? We, we, I don't know. I would say it's some combination of both here. 
that on the one hand, you have this strong force, these signs and wonders. And on the other side, you have these weak force, the uh, real, authentic, spirit-filled Christian life that's kind of quiet and caring. And they're both there commending themselves to the growth. We see the same thing in Acts 4. If you just turn there real quickly, it's kind of the second church description we find. It's Acts 4, and it's verse 32. I'm going to just read five or so verses. The church is growing, and here's what we hear in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite native of Cyprus sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Once again, we see the same sort of mixed forces in the church. We see the authority of the apostles, the great grace of God that's upon them. I think that's sort of just hinting to the power that's being worked out through the apostles' lives that's there. But then you also see this fairly striking example of the weak force working among the church, of people selling things to support the needs of others, people not viewing things that they have as their own, people uh, relinquishing the spirit of ownership in this world for a fellowship that is really belonging to the next. And we have this really great example at the end, verses 36 and 37, you have this picture of Barnabas. It says he's a Levite. So he's from the, the, the priestly tribe. And it says he sold his property and he laid it at the apostles' feet. He sold the field and laid it at the apostles' feet. <clears throat> this is a picture of someone who's sold out for the Lord, right? Now, part of the reason I think Luke is describing Barnabas is because he's going to become a character in a second. He's going to have speaking parts in the story. So Barnabas sort of, want, or Luke wants us to know when he enters in. But I think another reason that Luke is describing Barnabas here is because it's a really good example of a changed life. Here's someone from the priestly tribe who's converted to Jesus Christ and in such a way that he's selling what he has to give to the fellowship. We all see the work of the apostles. So there's this high regard in Acts, especially in the early chapters of Acts, there's this high regard for this apostolic force. So I'm not trying to discount it. I'm not trying to compete with it. I'm not trying to kind of uh, scrutinize it. I guess what I simply want us to do is to pause and acknowledge that changed lives also have power. Changed lives. One more sort of look back moment. This is in Acts 6, which we looked at last week. It's a familiar passage to us now, so I won't read the whole thing, but I'll, I'll read enough that we can sort of jog our memory. It says, now in these days, this is Acts 6.1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. And so the church actually does that. They go to select these men and the story lists them. And then we can continue in verse 7. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what we see in the beginning, it says, Hey, on account of the church, on account of the fact that the church was growing, this is verse 1, what we find is, is that problems that exist outside outside the body of Christ show up inside the body of Christ, okay? So in the rising number of converts and as this sort of uh, large group of people is coming into the faith, they're bringing with them their baggage. And what we see is the baggage of the world shows up inside the church. This is ethnic turmoil, which was very common in Jewish life. There was a synagogue for those people and a synagogue. They're all Jews, but there's a synagogue for those kinds of Jews and a synagogue for those kinds of Jews and a synagogue for those kinds of Jews. And so what we're seeing is, is that reality that is common outside the fellowship is showing up inside the fellowship. And the apostles say it's not right, it shouldn't be, but they also say it's not for us to solve. What I'm saying is, is this problem does not require a miracle. In fact, I don't think a miracle would have contributed. We might say that a miracle would have been powerless in this problem. Nor does it seem to require a new teaching. You notice the disciples uh, don't sit down the church and say, now we need to talk about how to deal with this. They actually seem to act and behave as though the church really ought to know how to deal with this. You just, what you really need, what you really need is spiritual wisdom and a spirit to obey. That's what you need. Pick from among you people who you can trust will follow the spirit. In other words, this problem leans distinctly on what I would call the weak force, the weak spiritual force, the fruits of the spirit. Right? It's an occasion where uh, actually in, for the church to triumph here, it's in need of the regular things of God. And the apostles, they don't take that on. They actually look to the church. They don't even look to seven men. They look to the church. They say to the church, you choose from among yourself those who will lead you through this. So they look to the church and they say, manage this in the spirit. It's not apostolic. It's the basic fruits of the spirit. I want to note that it's not even the gifts of the spirit. It's the fruits of the spirit. We should see here that the triumph is coming out of basic spiritual fruit. That basic spiritual fruit has tremendous power on the whole. It has tremendous power. In fact, this, the account sort of ends with what happened therefore. So you look at seven and it says, and the word of God continued to increase. In fact, my other Bible says, so the word of God continued to increase, almost like therefore on account of, like on account of the way that the church triumphed over this issue in the fruits of the spirit, it blew up, it multiplied. 
been multiplied is what it says. In fact, we get this very unusual statement. Even priests became faithful to the word of God. Even priests. That's a significant statement. Now, I can't say this with surety, so I can't teach this. I can wonder this. So I'll wonder it with you. I wonder if that statement, like even priests came to the Lord, I wonder if that's because this ethnic strife, which was so common in their Jewish life, if that was, if that really was miraculous to them. Let me just say it that way. If dealing with this ethnic disharmony, which was such a way of Jewish life, if them seeing people from different ethnicities come into the fellowship and being harmoniously blended and melded together, if that for them was the miracle. I mean, we're fairly far along in the proclamation of the apostles and the priests haven't come. The priests have know about these miracles, I imagine. Imagine they know about the apostolic strong force power. That's You know, Jesus did it and people didn't come to the Lord. But this is what does it. It just makes me wonder which force is really stronger on the whole. Okay, just sit on this for a second and have us think about uh, the nature of our witness today and start by saying a community of believers. Let's just use Acts 6 in this weak force to think about a community of believers really ought to triumph over outside problems. Let me just start with that statement. In other words, the problems that you and I see that are common in the community around us, outside the, the boundary of our fellowship, those, those problems, we really ought to, inside the fellowship, triumph over them. And that is witness. And it may be the most significant witness. It may be, to some people, a miracle. I'm not saying that we need to go outside the walls of the fellowship and solve the problem. I'm not saying that we have the calling or even the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. I'm saying that when those problems come into the church, then the church ought to triumph over them. Whether it's uh, issues of forgiveness, issues of all the isms uh, that we live in outside the walls, all of the other identities that we uh, connect ourselves to, there should be this this the refining purity that happens when we come together that should and will have power. The basic fruits of the Spirit, your life generating fruits, like when it meets my life generating fruits, it really ought to create some kind of miracle. You know, when the apostles teach in their letters, when they begin to teach, Peter, John, James, these guys, they don't coach the church into how to have uh, apostolic power moments. You don't find that. You simply don't find it. In fact, you find the opposite. You find them shepherding the community of believers towards the fruits of the Spirit. Peter says, live such good lives among the Gentiles that though they say evil about you, they see your good deeds and glorify the Lord on the day of his coming. That's what he says. Again and again, he says stuff like that. John says this, Beloved, let us love one another because love's of God. And anyone who is born of God loves God. If you don't love, you don't know God. I mean, there's this, John's not saying, hey, let me tell you how to prophesy. 
Let me, let me work out what healing hands ought to do. You don't see that in the ministry of John. Paul, writing a letter to the Corinthians, deals exactly with this problem. He's writing to a fellowship that's infatuated with apostolic power and gifts and the showmanship of the faith. And there's sort of this ambition, this selfish ambition in the church to have a little bit more apostolic cred than the person next to you, to have a little more power than the person next to you. And it's out of that very thing that, that Paul says, you know what, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not love, I'm a resounding gong, I'm a clinging symbol, nothing. I'm nothing. Prophecies will cease, tongues will cease, knowledge will cease, but love will remain. Fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the weak force. That performs miracles. Okay. That's us looking back. So now we're going to pivot and we're going to look forward in the book. And... Uh, it's going to look, it's going to kind of just change and just twist the Rubik's cube a little bit. Okay. So I, will, I hope now we've seen like there's this strong force and then there's this weak force traveling right alongside of it that has power. It may not be notable, but it might on the whole do more. Okay. Now we're going to sort of look at the forensic nature of the church growth and sort of wonder how did it grow? By what power did it grow? So let's go to chapter nine. So in the meantime, you know, so six, these uh, leaders are called seven, Stephen preaches, eight, uh, he's stoned, and the church is scattered. Uh, in fact, we have this famous phrase in Acts 8, 4, those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. And then in the eighth chapter, we're given this focus of, uh, of Philip and his ministry. And we said he may not be an apostle, but man, he had a lot of apostolic power. Um, but we're going to actually shift what Luke is doing is even continuing to move the camera. And now we're going to start to see things uh, uh, that maybe you weren't expecting. So I'm in the ninth chapter. And uh, the account is actually the conversion of Saul. So that's Paul the Apostle's uh, Hebrew name. So Luke is going to be in the ninth chapter talking about the conversion of Saul. And I'm not really interested in it. So I'm going to read it. We'll actually deal with Paul next week. It's actually what's hiding in the background that I want us to know. So I just want to read the first four verses of chapter 9. Here's what it says. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now I'll stop there. Again, my interest is less uh, Saul in a more, it's actually Damascus. What must we conclude exists in Damascus? I think the word is a church. Like in the persecution of the church that Saul's zealously devoted to, okay, he's sort of this arch enemy of the church. And as he's persecuting the church in Jerusalem, 
apparently something significant enough is going on in Damascus that he has to get on a horse or donkey or whatever and go hundreds of miles, a hundred miles to Damascus to manage that problem. It's, so it's not only maybe that there's a church in Damascus, there might be a church movement in Damascus. There's a problem in Damascus. Who planted that church? We have no idea. We have no idea. Well, we do have some idea. We know it's not the apostles. We know not the apostles planted the church. And Saul didn't, Paul didn't plant the church because Saul's, Paul's not a Paul yet. He's a Saul. If we were to keep reading the story, we would find a man named Ananias, who's a follower of Jesus in Damascus. And he turns out he's a fairly, fairly wise, spirit-filled individual. And then we would also, we get to verse 18 and 19. This is sort of at the conversion of Paul. And when Ananias lays his hand on him and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and it says in 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Look, then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples. It doesn't sound to me like there's this uh, kind of blind, Christian-esque sort of book club in Damascus. There's a believer, Ananias, who's full of the Spirit, receptive to the Holy Ghost. Scales fall from Paul's eyes. He gets baptized. I mean, they baptize. They have a baptistry or something, right? And then for a while, he's with the disciples. It sounds, it sounds like a church. Look at verse 31. This is going to be the, sort of the, the third church update that we see here. And I just want us to sort of see what's here and what isn't. It's just one verse. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. Fear of the Lord, comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Fear of the Lord. Tell me what force this is. So the strong force, the weak force. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. Did you know what's not in this passage? The apostles are not in this passage. Apostolic power is not in this passage. None of that's in this passage. Now, we know the apostles are at work, but I just want us to see sort of how the lens of Scripture is shifting to say the church is multiplying with the kinds of things that you and I have and not necessarily with the kinds of things that you and I don't have. Here, watch this. Let me look, look with me in verse 32. Now, what you're going to see in 32 is Peter is on kind of a church encouragement tour, okay? So... Uh, pick up in verse 32. This is chapter 9, 32. It says, Now as Peter went here and there, among all the, among them all he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And what he's going to go on to say is he's going to come and he's going to find this person who's paralyzed and he's going to heal. So I'm not trying to deny or compete with the fact that holy, strong, apostolic power, right? the strong force is going to show up. What I want you to see is what was there before the strong force showed up. A church. He comes to the saints in Lydda. He didn't plant the church in Lydda. 
We don't know who, well, we do know who didn't plant the church in Lydda, right? We know the apostles didn't plant the church in Lydda because all who were scattered except the apostles. The apostles were the only ones who stayed in Jerusalem. So what we do know in this case is that the weak force preceded the strong force. The strong force comes after the weak force and there's additional growth and encouragement, which I'm all about. But I just want us to see that the, the, the Lord worked through anonymous Christians whose names you will never know this side of heaven who planted the church in Lydda. Look at this in verse uh, 36 through 38. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, which I will say is an unfortunate reality. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. What's in Joppa? A church. Who planted it? We don't know. Verse 31 says, we talked about this, the church grew all throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. It had, the, it had in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit. Do you have that? That's the weak spirit, right? Are you able to live in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Are you able to act in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit? This is how the church flourished outside of Jerusalem, through nameless people whose names we'll never know. Just like your name will very likely not be written in the, in the memorial halls of church history, the church was planted by regular people. Regular people like you and me doing regular, weak things that when you add them all together in their aggregate are in fact miraculous. You and I evangelize. Our best evangelism is when the world inside the walls of the church looks different than the world's outside the walls of the church. This is why it is just so unsatisfactory for you or I or any of us to fall to the myth that the heart of the church is listening to a sermon. It's so incomplete. It's so non-transformational to the outside world. How does the weak force show itself? One last reading. Okay, so I'm going to skip 10. I'm going to pick up an 11, but I want to tell you what happens in 10. Uh, in 10, Luke is going to describe a very important moment where God uh, uses Peter and brings Peter to the doorstep of a man named Cornelius, who's a Gentile, not a Greek Jew, a full-on Gentile, and how essentially the Lord is going to hold Peter's hand all the way through the fact of the realization that Gentiles can now be in the kingdom of God. Okay, so this very significant sort of landmark case in early Christianity happens in chapter 10. But I want to pick up an 11. Uh, actually, 11, 19 through 26 is sort of the, uh, the bookend of this age of persecution. But this is what he says. <clears throat> this is such a great passage. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. That was verse 19. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. In other words, 
they also spoke to Gentiles. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Who planted Antioch? Antioch's not an insignificant church. You know, it becomes a center. It becomes a center of activity. The church in Antioch is where the Lord's going to speak to send Paul on his missionary journeys. The church in Antioch is going to be largely responsible for gathering an offering to assist the church in Jerusalem during famine. Who planted the church in Antioch? Who planted the great church of Antioch? We have no clue. Actually, we know who didn't. The apostles didn't. And tell me this, in this reading, did you see anywhere in this reading where the strong apostolic force, the miracle-making force, the raising the dead, healing the lame, fixing the paralytic, casting out the demons, did you see how that had any real real significant role? I didn't. I didn't at all. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm saying Luke doesn't seem to think it's that significant anymore. What Luke seems to think is significant is that there's people, there's people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and they understand the grace of the Lord and then the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit they speak and they live the fruits of the Spirit out, the basic fruits of the Spirit out. I'm not even sure it's the gifts of the Spirit. They live the basic fruits of the Spirit out. And so that inside of their lives being lived together, their fellowship and their one anothering and their sharing and their long suffering and their prayer, in all of that, they begin to look distinctly unlike the problems that the world is frustrated with. The very thing the people, the people who are in darkness are probing around, wondering, is there a better way? They're showing a better way, and something miraculous happens. Right? So we see that Peter theoretically understood the Gentiles could be part of the kingdom. We see that nameless Christians on the way to Antioch practically blow the doors open. They practically do. What the Lord had to walk Peter hand, like hold his hand to figure out. Largely as a result of the weak force. I see regular Christians bearing witness in regular ways. And I see that is on the whole, on the whole, in the infinite history of the kingdom of God, the stronger of the two forces. I see unnoteworthy Christians behaving in a noteworthy manner. And on the whole, that's more miraculous. I see tremendous boundaries being crossed by people who are full of spirit. And because of that, it's miraculous. These, all these things that I just described, you have if you're in Christ. I have if I'm in Christ. All these things which I just described, you and I ought to together be exemplifying. We ought to be showing this very same manner. We ought to be like the church in Antioch. That is an unavoidable conclusion to Scripture. What can we say? Well, we can say the apostles initiated a movement of the Spirit that continued in great, great, weak, 
power through nameless believers. We can see that the genuine Christian life has power, particularly when Christians are living together, really together. We can see that the church looking different on the inside versus the outside can be a miracle. And we can see that we do not need to wait for the strong force to initiate things. So as we deal with the idea of evangelism, I want to ask us, I want to ask you what you're waiting for. Why aren't you? I want to ask you what's next. Like of the pieces I described here, what's next? Because we could say that, you know, when Jesus sat down with the woman at the well, yeah, he knows, he knows her past in a pretty remarkable way, but uh, he did just sit down with her. When, when is that going to become a regular part of our life? Because we do believe that God wants to grow and spread and mature his kingdom. And we also know that he's going to use us through the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask as I bow our heads in prayer that you have that person, that, that the one maybe in your mind, Lord. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer. And I'm thinking of my person now, my people. I have more than one uh, that I've been orbiting and trying to figure out how do I come out of orbit in the name of Jesus? How am I wise for the Spirit but willing? How, Lord, when the Spirit says go, will I run? How, Lord, do I need to mend and work on my life now, the fruits of the Spirit of my life now, so that my life with others shows the miracle of the Lord, that I exemplify the weak force, the grand, marvelous, powerful, weak force of the Holy Spirit, Lord. This is what we ask for. Pray you forgive us of saying things like, I'm not equipped well enough yet. I don't know enough yet. I'm not equipped enough yet. Lord, I pray you forgive us of that hesitancy there. I pray you give us a fear of the Lord and a comfort of the Spirit. That's what we ask for today, Lord. So that we rise from this service, Lord, we go out with hope. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.